you would, please get your Bibles and turn to Psalm 13. The 13th Psalm we're going to look at this evening. Psalm 13. Before we actually get into the lesson proper, I want to again just thank you for your attention and for the invitation to speak again tonight. And I also want to say on behalf of our family how glad we are to be a part of this congregation. Some of you may not know, but I've grown up with many of the people here. I think uh, I was about 10 or 11 years old when we moved to Franklin and, and worshipped with many here in the congregation for several years. I've got a lot of very fond memories of those years when you're going through elementary school, junior high, and high school. Sometimes those years can be a little rough and rocky, but I think of a lot of uh, things that we used to do with the Adairs and the Frasers and I was the same age as their children, belong. Uh, one thing stands out in my mind, I keep going over and over a night during the winter, much as this was. And back then, before global warming, we used to get a lot of snow. We would be out of school for months at a time, it seemed like. We all piled into the Adair's car once, probably around 9 or 10 o'clock at night. I think there was eight of us in there. I remember being in the front seat with Don and Linda and their daughter driving to the bowling alley. We all had, after that, we'd go to the Krispy Kreme about midnight and we'd drive back to our homes. And uh, I'll never forget that one particular night because I felt like if that door just popped open, I'd be out on the road. But a lot of the, the people here did have a good impact on me. And, uh, I remember many of y'all taught my classes, and I appreciate that. And, and I just want to say that I'm thankful for that and for this opportunity this evening. Let's begin, first of all, by reading Psalm 13. It's not a very long psalm. It is attributed to David, a psalm of David. And he begins in verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13 is a psalm that I think is something many of us can relate to. As being a child of God, a follower of God, as David certainly was. But yet we realize that everything in life 
does not work out according to the way we would like it to work out. Sometimes there are problems, many times there are problems. Sometimes we suffer uh, afflictions of the flesh. Sometimes there's mental anguish. There may be uh, periods of depression, anxiety. And this is a psalm that, uh, if we were to categorize the psalms, there are, there are some that are, are called disorientation psalms. And what that simply means is that this is a psalm that was written in the context of a period where the writer was going through these kinds of troubling times. It was written in the context of, of a season of hurt or alienation or suffering or, or death, which for that person evoked feelings of rage or resentment, perhaps self-pity or hatred. And we see those types of things in this particular psalm. Now, the historical links for Psalm 13, I think, go all the way back to First uh, Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to look at a couple of texts there, so if you want, go ahead and turn to First Samuel chapter 18, and we'll see that David, when he was newly anointed to be the king, was still under the kingship of Saul. But David, after killing Goliath, was becoming very popular with the people. In fact, verse 7 of 1 Samuel 18 says that the women sang a song as they danced, that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And this made Saul very angry. This upset Saul. And Saul wanted to do something about it going on. It says in verse 9, So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And that phrase that Saul eyed David simply means that he was keeping his eye on him, looking for an opportunity to get rid of David. He didn't like David. He goes on to say there in verse 11 that uh, sometimes David would play music for Saul. It says in verse 11 that Saul cast a spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall with it. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Saul on several occasions tried to kill David by taking a spear and throwing it at him and pinning him against the wall with it. He was unsuccessful in that. Chapter 19, beginning in verse 9, says, Now a distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in the house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hands, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence. And he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. And we can see that David's in a pretty bad situation because the king is trying to kill him. And he's taking opportunities to do that. So David has to flee. Down in verse 18 of 1 Samuel 19, it says that David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. So he has to flee his land and his home. It's another chapter later in chapter 20 in verse 1 it says that David had to flee from this location, Naoth, where he had been with Samuel in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? He knew his intent was to kill him. And he has to flee again from another location. Chapter 21 
down in verse 10. 1 Samuel 21 and verse 10, it says, Then David arose and fled from before Saul that day and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So again, David has to flee from where he's at because of Saul. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to him to one another in dances, saying, Saul is slain his thousands, and David is ten thousand? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He's also afraid of this king. And this went on for many years that David had to endure this. So we get back to Psalm 13. where David is pleading with God in this psalm, wondering why these things are happening to him, wondering how long this is going to go on. And we see in this psalm some things, I think, that help us when perhaps we're going through situations and trials or tribulations or periods of our life where things seem rather disoriented from what they used to be and from what we want them to be. The first part of the psalm is definitely a part, is a protest. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, to David, he feels as if God has forgotten him. He's been pretty patient, at least in his own thinking, up until now, but at this point, he's just crying out to God. And when he says, How long, he's literally saying, Until when? When is this going to end? And he wonders, how much more longer is it going to continue? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Not only does he feel like that God has forgotten him, but he feels like that this is deliberate, that God is deliberately hiding his face from him. He goes on to say in verse 2, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily. Not only is David in this situation where he feels like God has forgotten him and hidden from him, but he also indicates here that I'm having to rely on my own self. I have to take heed in my own counsel, and I know it's not good enough. I need you. I need your strength and your counsel. But where are you, God? How long will you be gone from me? In verse 2, he also says, How long will my enemy be exalted over me? And this kind of indicates the particular trouble that Saul, or that David rather was dealing with. There's some sort of enemy out there who seemingly is triumphing over him. And he's the one who's trying to do right, but yet there's this enemy out there. He's not one of God's followers. I am one of God's followers, and I'm the one that's having all the trouble. Sometimes I think like that. <coughs> Sometimes we perhaps think, God, have you forgotten about me, your servant? Have you forgotten all the things I've done for you? Have you forgotten that I obeyed the gospel and that has cost me something? Have you forgotten? Or we think that God is, is hiding from us. In the sense that he must be angry with me about something because he's not answering my prayers to end it. 
Or have you ever wondered, you know, I don't know what to do in this situation. I've prayed for wisdom, but I don't think I'm getting it. And I'm having to rely on my own intuition, my own counsel, and I know I can't make the wise decision. Or perhaps we think, well, maybe my enemies, whether they're real or not, are, are winning the battle. They're winning the day, and I'm not. And the root problem of these, these doubting, this doubt is the old battle between the spirit and the flesh. We want to believe, don't we? We want to believe that God is there and that He's answering us and we pray to God because we believe, yet we still have doubt sometimes. We still have these real-life struggles to deal with that won't go away. Paul in Romans chapter 7 talks about some the weaknesses of the flesh and he talks about the wretched man that he was, his heart was for God, but yet sometimes he would succumb to the flesh. And sometimes we have that same problem like David did, like Paul did. The second part of this psalm is the petition. Verse 3. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. What David says here, despite his earlier assertion in verses 1 and 2, that he thinks that God has forgotten him, that he thinks God is hidden from him, he still turns to God in this psalm, in prayer. And he makes three requests. He first of all says, God, would you please consider me? Look, I am here, he's saying. You know I'm here. I'm your anointed one, and I'm asking you to please consider me. Look at me again. Secondly, he says, God, I want you to hear me. Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. And thirdly, he says, I want you to enlighten my eyes or impart new life. And what he's doing is he's making a request for God to interpose in this particular situation. And he says, if you don't do it, Lord, if you don't intercede at this point, I feel like I'm going to die. I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemies will triumph over me. In verse 4, those who trouble me will rejoice in this particular situation. And there's times when I have those feelings too. There's times when we have to turn to God even though we think He's far away from us. I cannot even begin to imagine what it would be like to be halfway across the world at this time in the areas that have been ravaged by the terrible storms, the natural catastrophes. If I was there and I saw all of the death and the destruction, I would certainly be tempted like David to say, God, where were you when this happened? How could you let this happen? But then I would hope I would have the strength like David to turn and pray to God in that situation and ask Him to interpose. And there's times when we have to pray to God, what kind of enemies do we have? Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 10 in verse 36 that Sometimes our enemies would be 
those in our own family. And I would have to think that this would be the worst possible kind of enemy to have. Someone who is in our family, someone who's related to us, but yet for some reason they are our enemy. Families get in squabbles, sometimes really bad ones, and people won't talk to each other for years and years. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 36, Jesus said, A man's foes will be those of his own household. Jesus, has, in this context, is talking about the fact that when we become a Christian, sometimes that gospel message and that life that we've committed to will bring problems in families. And he said, I didn't, bring to, I didn't come to bring peace. I came with a sword, verse 34. And we've got to love Jesus more than we love anyone else, even those of our own family. The greatest enemy, I guess, that we all have is death. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, <coughs> verse 25, Paul writing here says that he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Every single one of us has this great enemy, death. Because we know that God did not intend death for humans when He created us. He intended that we live forever with Him in the paradise of the garden. But death is something that would claim every single one of us. And we see that. Death is certainly our enemy. How do we face that? When we know, if we know that death is near, sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we will know. Would we face it with the strength that David here is praying to God? Or would we turn from God and wonder why is this like this? 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6 is another one of our enemies is Satan, our adversary, the devil. We have a great enemy in Satan. What the devil wants is to take each one of us away from God. And he will lay temptations before us, and if we don't succumb to it the first time, He'll put it before us again. If we're strong that time, He'll put it there again and again and again, trying to wear us down. And if we're strong on that, He'll find another temptation. And those temptations can become so strong, and we wonder, why do I have to face this temptation? God, can't you take this temptation away? And we pray to God. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18 simply says that many walk that are enemies of the cross. There is a whole host of enemies of the cross of Christ here on earth. I would say that the, the media is an enemy of the cross of Christ. Hollywood, anything that goes into creating most of our popular forms of entertainment these days 
is controlled by people who are deliberately hostile to the cross, to Jesus, Christianity. You know, it wasn't many years ago that you could turn on the TV and watch a couple of shows in the evening with your children and not be afraid about anything that you saw. But it's not like that now. In fact, it is so bad now, I hesitate to flip channels not even knowing what may appear on the next one. And I've just got general television. There are many enemies we have to face that seem very strong, just like David did. And we turn and we need to pray to God. And then David in Psalm 13 turns to praising God. He says in verse 5, But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Despite all of these things that he mentioned when he, he began in verses 1 and verse 2, when he wonders about God, where are you and why have you hidden from me and, and why are my enemies triumphing? By verse 5, he's talking about his trust in God and his rejoicing in God. In verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he is so great. He is so great and has given us so much. David says, I have trusted in the mercy of God. I still trust in the mercy of God, and I will always trust in the mercy of God. Which brings me to our application. Over in Philippians <clears throat> chapter 4 and verse 4 through 7. The Apostle Paul talks about the Christian and prayer. And I want to say at this point, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed and learned so much from our study of prayer last fall. And I had many good things in my own personal life that resulted from it. But you know, as, a, as time has gone by, and that hasn't been very long ago, I'm already starting to fall back into some of my older habits. And isn't that true? We get, we can kind of get excited, we study, and we work on something, but then when that's done, we move on something else, those things kind of fade away. So we need to constantly remind ourselves and encourage ourselves in those things. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We have to take it to the Lord. What is it that we're struggling? What is it that is a temptation for us? What is it that is a tribulation for us? Then we need to take it to the Lord. You know, sometimes before we go to the Lord, we may, what if we have a financial problem? Do we first of all go to our CPA or financial planner, or do we go to God first for wisdom? 
When we have a health problem, do we first of all go to the doctor? Or do we first of all go to the Lord? If we're depressed about something, do we first turn to psychologists or friends for counsel, or do we first take it to the Lord? And I think sometimes we as Christians have a hard time knowing how to approach God when we're lamenting a particular problem. It's easy for me to go to God in prayer and, and praise Him and thank Him for things, but when there's something amiss and something that's wrong, it's hard for me to know how do I ask God and let Him know that I'm not happy with this and I want this particular thing to change. How can I word that? How can I say that? I think we see in the Bible that our prayer of trust in God can be many things. And it's not simply limited to simply saying, well, God, I know things are bad, and thank you for that opportunity to become stronger through these tribulations. But we see in the Bible in many places that people approach God deliberately about their problems. We see Old Testament Israel in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23 that they were in Egyptian bondage, Egyptian slavery, and that their task here had been made extremely hard. It says in verse 23 of Exodus chapter 2 that it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So here we see that the children of Israel, when this terrible situation came, they cried out to God. In fact, this prayer to God was a groaning because of the situation. And it says that they cried out, and it came up to God, and He heard them, and He remembered them. It's okay to come to God in that sense, and let Him know the situation, and let Him know how we feel about the situation. But we see also in Exodus chapter 4, in verse 30, that after Moses and Aaron come to the children of Israel with signs and and do them before the people, that the people believed in verse 31, Exodus 4, 31. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that He had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Just like David, who brought his prayer and his petition before God in the beginning of Psalm 13, in the end of it, ended with praising God. They ended up worshiping God. We also see that Moses himself on several occasions had brought his complaints before God. Exodus chapter 5 and verse 22. When Moses and Aaron first appeared before Pharaoh, the response was not very favorable. We know that Pharaoh decided that he would make the lot of the Israelites even more difficult than it had been before, and that they would have to make bricks without straw 
and so forth. And so the children of Israel are upset with Moses. In verse 22, it says that Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Now, this is Moses talking to God. And he brings a complaint before God. I say, why have you done this? Why did you allow this to happen? You know, I came to, to free these people. And you've made it even worse on them. But you know, God doesn't work on our timetable. And that's something that Moses had to learn. In Exodus chapter 7, we see that the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. This verses 1 and 2. And Aaron your brother will speak of Pharaoh, that he must send the children of Israel out of this land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. It was never God's intention from the beginning that they would just go home and march right out of Egypt. God wanted to show his wonders to Pharaoh. And so it wasn't going to happen immediately. Down in verse 6 it says, Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. So yes, Moses had this complaint against God, but what did he end up doing? He ended up obeying God. He obeyed God. We see also David again, this time in Psalm 40 and verse 1. <clears throat> Psalm 40 and 1. David says here that I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. So David says here in Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, that first of all, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my cry. Sometimes the prayer of trust in God is also a cry to God. But the result wasn't disbelief in God. It was praising God. In verse 3, He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it and trust in the Lord. Again, we'll see with the Apostle Paul that over in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is discussing here, for various reasons he's bringing this up because he had been accused of not being a real apostle by some who were troubling the Corinthians. And so he says in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 12, As such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. And because of that, he's going to go on and talk about an infirmity that he had. He says in verse 7, 
And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Much has been written about the thorn in the flesh of Paul. I have no idea what that thorn in the flesh may be, except it is something that obviously was very painful for Paul, either in a physical sense or a mental sense or a spiritual sense. Because when we read about all of the things that Paul had gone through in suffering for Christ, listed in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he gives a whole litany of things that he had endured for the cross of Christ, I know that the thorn in the flesh must have been something, or else among all those other perils and tribulations, he wouldn't have even noticed. But he says regarding this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan that was given to him to keep him humble because of his revelations he had been given. He says in verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would depart from me. And sometimes a prayer of trust in God is a plea. When we make a request, and we'll make it several times because we still haven't had that request answered. But the prayer of trust in God is also a trust. Look at what he says in verse 10. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Through it all, Paul trusted God. And then finally we'll see Jesus himself on the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, there's sometimes a, a prayer can be an inquiry. Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is being crucified. It says in verse 45, now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here our Lord, as he is hung, hanging on the cross, cries out to God with a question. Why have you forsaken me? But we also see over in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, that does not mean that God, that Jesus rather did not trust in God. Luke 23 and 46, And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. We can groan, we can complain, we can cry, we can plead, and we can ask questions of God. It does not mean that we do not believe in God. It does not mean that we are acting disrespectful 
of God. It means we are simply like David, a man wanting to understand why things are happening, and we could turn to anything. People will turn to all sorts of things to find answers to their problems. Many people will turn to drugs or alcohol because they don't understand their problems, so they try to mask them and cover them up. Some people will turn to money and think, if I can, I'll just amass a lot of money and I'll solve all my own problems. But what God wants His children to do is, yes, He understands we're human, we're frail, we're of the flesh, and we're going to have these feelings, but what He wants us to do is express them to Him. And then to trust Him that He'll hear that. And then to be like Israel, to turn and worship Him. Or like Moses, to turn and obey Him. Or like David, to turn and praise Him. Or like Paul, to admit that through God's grace we are strong, or like Jesus, to commend ourselves to our Creator. Ask God for what we need. Do we need guidance? Is there some problem in our life that we don't have the solution to? Do we need God's help and, and wisdom? Is it forgiveness of sin? There's only one source for forgiveness of sin. There's only one being in the universe that can forgive of sin, and that's God. Is it for mercy or strength, understanding? We need to ask God for our needs, and then we need to praise God, whatever those needs are. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. One more scripture. Romans chapter 8. And verse 22. <clears throat> up in verse 18, first of all, Paul starts off by saying that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will, which will be revealed to us. God and Jesus understand the suffering. That's why Jesus came to earth and lived as a man. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints 
according to his according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We have help in our prayer. And even though we may not know how to approach God, we have the hope we have the help of the Holy Spirit. Who himself, we're told in verse twenty six, makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And we have to trust God then to know that all things would work together for good. So first of all we've got to turn to God. We turn to God, we're told in Acts three nineteen the people there turned to God. Many people were turning to God. And what that phrase means is that they were obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simply the good news that we can have all of our sins taken away. We can be forgiven of those sins through the blood of Jesus His Son. And we enter that blood through baptism. This evening, before we leave, we're going to extend the invitation of Jesus. If you're not a Christian and would like to become one this evening, you can come forward making the confession of faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, and we can baptize you this evening for the remission of those sins. And if you've done that in the past and you would need or would like to request the prayers of this congregation for you, won't you come forward as well right now while we stand in place?